There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Welcome to this week's No Restraint Podcast. I'm Joyce Kaufman and you're not. I want to talk about a couple of different things today because, of course, there's no shortage of crazy stories and news stories. In his novel, This Side of Paradise, F. Scott Fitzgerald makes occasional mentions of something he calls the electric. The book, which was his first, was written in 1919 and published in 1920, precisely the era when cars were overtaking the horse and buggy The electric was how people a century ago referred to an electric car. Electric cars were expensive, but if you had money, you favored them because they didn't require a hand crank. It wasn't long, though, before the electric was overtaken by Henry Ford's cheaper and more reliable gas-powered Model T, after which every entrepreneur who had bet on electric cars was soon out of business. They'd made a bet on the future, and they'd lost. Welcome to capitalism. The story of the internet news site is a lot like what happened in the early days of the auto industry. Dozens of companies were started during the late aughts and early 2010s by smart, ambitious entrepreneurs who all made bets on how social media would evolve and which business models would succeed. Some of the bets were idiotic. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Ozzy and Quibi, but many others made sense, or at least they seemed to at the time. That is, until the world veered off in a direction their founders hadn't expected. Here we are a dozen or more years from those hopeful days, and once again, capitalism has done its brutal work. A clear picture is emerging, especially over the past few weeks, of the winners and the losers. Companies like The Information, The New York Times, and Axios are our Model Ts. Their bet was on producing must-have content that readers were willing to pay for, or in the case of Axios, that advertisers were willing to pay a premium to reach. The companies that made losing bets included Gawker, Vice, and BuzzFeed, whose CEO, Jonah Peretti, announced last month that he was shutting the company's news division. The bet they made was on traffic, that if they could generate ever-increasing numbers of viewers, they would be rewarded with ever-increasing ads and ever-increasing revenue. Without really intending to, they wound up hitching their fate to one of the world's most voracious monopolists, Facebook. And by the time they understood what they had done, It was game over. As it happens, around the same time Peretti was making his sad announcement, Ben Smith, the editor who built BuzzFeed News, 
was making the rounds of podcasts and TV shows plugging his new book, Traffic. It's a gossipy account of how Peretti, Gawker founder Nick Denton, and others who were there at the creation figured out how to get ever-increasing numbers of people to spend time on their sites and then use that knowledge to build businesses that generated revenue, if not profit. But traffic also turns out to be an instructive primer on the evolution of the modern media company's business model. To simplify enormously, Companies that begin with great plans for delivering content morphed over time into companies that became obsessed with clicks. But at a certain point, generating more traffic meant relying on social media, especially Facebook, unquestionably the world's most important source of traffic. As Facebook decided it had less need for its content partners, more traffic no longer generated more money. The quest for traffic turned out to be a mugs game. That business model wasn't the only thing that did these companies in. Nick Denton's Gawker, founded in 2002, gained notoriety and traffic by posting items that other more staid media companies wouldn't. Pictures of people's penises, for instance. In their youthful arrogance, Gawker's reporters thought they were telling bold truths that the lamestream media wouldn't, never considering that maybe it wasn't just prudery that was holding the others back. For a time, it worked. By 2015, the site was getting 23 million unique visitors a month. Three years earlier, however, Gawker had posted a video of former pro wrestler Hulk Hogan having sex with his best friend's wife. The billionaire Peter Thiel, who had been waiting for a chance to ruin Gawker for things that had said about him, backed Hogan's lawsuit. In March of 2016, a jury ordered Gawker to pay Hogan $140 million. So much for Gawker. Smith describes Vice, founded by three Canadian guys in the mid-1990s, as the hot macho media company. And at peak hotness, Vice had a valuation of nearly $6 billion. It began as a magazine, moved into digital in the mid-2000s, and then jumped from thing to thing. Online news, an HBO show, it was hard to keep track. Disney took a 15% stake in the company in 2015 and was rumored to be interested in buying the rest of it for a cool $5 billion. Vice also worshipped at the altar of traffic. But when it wasn't generating enough traffic on its own, it decided to include numbers from partner sites. When it ended that unseemly practice in 2019, its traffic immediately dropped 37%. Disney has since written off most of its stake. HBO canceled Vice's news show in 2019, and Vice's content has gone from bad to worse. The only reason it hadn't filed for bankruptcy until today is that it expected to be sold to two Wall Street hedge funds, including George Soros's. BuzzFeed News, which Smith built from the ground up, had a clear sense of what it was trying to do, break news and publish stories that were as good as anything the big boys did. In this, it succeeded, even winning a Pulitzer Prize in 2021. This allowed the media elite and the staff of BuzzFeed News to overlook the fact that it never actually made money. Listicles were the company's bread and butter. Smith recounts how its writers would find a headline that generated a lot of traffic and then milk it for all it was worth. What state do you actually belong in?
What's your sexual personality? Which animal do you feel best represents you? By 2014, it had 130 million monthly unique visitors. The bad news was that some 40% of that came from Facebook. For BuzzFeed, the canary in the coal mine should have been the experience of Upworthy, a small company founded in 2012 that gained, as Smith puts it, technical proficiency at maximizing traffic returns. Or rather, it did until Upworthy's headlines were no longer favored by the Facebook algorithm. Upworthy depended on Facebook, writes Smith, but to the platform, it was little more than a bug. So confident was Peretti of his standing with Facebook that he was actually feeding Facebook executives information about Upworthy headlines that caused the social media giant to downgrade its content. On one level, it's understandable that Peretti would be sanguine about Facebook. He had an inside track that almost no other tech CEO could match because he was friends with the Facebook executives who controlled the algorithm of the news feed. Jonah talked to Mark Zuckerberg all the time, Smith said. But when Facebook decided that content from news sites simply wasn't that important to its business model and that it would rather keep all that advertising money for itself, BuzzFeed was hardly going to get a carve-out. In the end, BuzzFeed was just a bug, too. Plainly, Peretti's reliance on Facebook, however unwitting at first, was a terrible error. But when you talk to Smith, he makes a pretty compelling argument that BuzzFeed's rationale made sense at the time. We thought it was going to mirror cable television, he said. As cable distribution was growing, cable operators realized they needed shows that could cause people to start paying for cable television. And eventually, both the cable operators and the cable networks made a lot of money. The theory was that social media was going to need professional content, which companies like BuzzFeed could provide. It wasn't an outlandish idea, but Facebook ultimately decided they wanted mainly user-generated content because it was free. But here's something else. In the early 2010s, back at the New York Times, CEO Mark Thompson outlined a new strategy. The Times' original digital strategy had been to give away its content for free and rely on, yes, traffic to generate advertising. But it wasn't working. It had to sell off its beautiful new headquarters to sustain itself and take a $250 million loan from Carlos Slim, the Mexican billionaire. The Times had even had to curtail its dividend, which had long supported members of the Salzburger family, which has owned the paper since 1896. That day, Thompson said that the Times was dramatically changing direction. Its journalism had enormous value, and Times business executives were convinced that people would pay for it. So did then-executive editor Bill Keller, who told Smith that he always believed that we could make this really great stuff and we ought to be able to charge for it. The Times soon set up a paywall system and stressed subscriptions over traffic. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, 
Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. That pivot has been enormously successful. In 2022, the New York Times company had $2.1 billion in revenue. Of that, 67% came from subscriptions. The Times now has nearly 9 million of them. If subscription news businesses are the winners of our current moment, the question is, what will be the next electric? And what will be the next Model T? Of course, a new untested business model was unveiled when Tucker Carlson posted a three-minute clip to Twitter. I'm back, he announced, promising that he would soon be streaming a new show on Twitter, very similar to his old one on Fox. So what does Ben Smith think of it all? I think we're headed into a more splintered world, he told me. Tucker can have influence and probably quite a lot of money, but it's hard to replace the power that comes with influencing millions of people who didn't sign up. Maybe Tucker Carlson will be Twitter's salvation. Maybe Twitter will save Carlson and provide a platform where he's free to say what he wants and make money in the process. Or maybe Rupert Murdoch will sue them both to kingdom come, and they'll both go down in flames together. Hat tip Ben Smith. As a consequence, the baseline must be reaffirmed. It's critical to understand that both the DNC and the RNC are private corporations with no affiliation to government. It is a difficult shift in thinking, but the party system in U.S. politics revolves around two distinct private corporations, two clubs that feed from the same corporate trough and position for influence and affluence within a political dynamic that they control. The priority for both clubs, Republican and Democrat, is not politically or culturally ideological. In the modern era, the corporate priority first begins with a battle over who controls each corporation. As long as there's no challenge, the clubs operate without issue. However, when there is a battle for control of the corporation, a battle that will ultimately determine the financial outcome, the internal battle becomes the priority. 2024 is going to be the election season when we see this corporate battle explode inside in the Republican group. Decades of entrenched power are at stake, and there has been four years of counter-positioning and backroom discussion leading up to this moment. As a consequence, and I know this may sound odd to many people, but winning and or losing elections becomes a secondary issue. The RNC is not focused on winning elections. The RNC Corporation is focused on retaining control. The RNC wants to give the illusion of support for MAGA conservatism because they need the base voter and they need to maintain the illusion of choice. However, every move they make on an operational level is exactly in line with their previous outlook toward cocktail class republicanism. The MAGA base of support cannot trust this corporate group. When you hear the influence group saying the two priorities for control of the Republican club involve one, eliminating populism in the ranks, and two, realigning with multinational corporate objectives like Wall Street, what they are publicly expressing 
is their RNC corporate need to get rid of the America First economic agenda, to get rid of the MAGA influence. How has this historically surfaced? Well, at a national level, there's a unique policy priority almost every politician on both sides will avoid discussing. At a national level, a single policy priority determines all other national policy outlooks, and that policy is the national economic policy. The national economic policy of a presidential candidate determines all other policies that flow from the presidential candidate. The national economic policy impacts the obvious policies like energy and trade and also determines the lesser obvious policies like regulation and even foreign policy. It is specifically because a candidate's national economic outlook impacts all other issues that most federal candidates and politicians never talk about it. It would be impossible to support Main Street USA, a popular talking point, and still support the Paris Climate Treaty or the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership or the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. To avoid the contradictions, most Democrat and Republican politicians avoid discussing their national economic policy. It's like an unspoken rule within the billionaire club and donor game, an economic code of omerta amid most political candidates. President Trump broke the rule and even went so far as to campaign on an America first economic policy agenda. That core outlook forms the Make America Great Again Foundation. MAGA is based on a national economic policy outlook that determines every other national policy as carried by President Trump. While most Americans may not be able to articulate how the national economic policy impacts them, almost every American feels the consequences through gasoline prices, energy prices, employment, wage rates, and the expenses within their everyday lives. To try and hide this reality, often media and economic analysts will say the U.S. president has no control over gasoline prices. However, this is unequivocally false. Yes, it is true that oil prices are determined by the global market for the product, the supply and the demand. However, the energy policy of the president determines the domestic investment in natural resource development and extraction by oil companies. The energy policy determines domestic supply. The regulatory policy determines the expansion or lack therein of oil and gasoline refinery capacity. So yes, it is ultimately the U.S. president who determines gasoline prices indirectly through energy and regulatory policy. If this were not the case, then gasoline would cost nearly the same in almost every nation. It doesn't. Right now, gasoline in Mexico is almost a buck less than gasoline in the United States, specifically because Mexican President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador is not trying to reduce oil resource investment, development, and or gasoline refinery capacity. President Trump was the first presidential candidate who campaigned on a domestic national economic policy. He even went one step further and stated the T word, tariffs. Yep, the Commerce Department holds tools to support a national economic policy. The tariff tool is another aspect to national economics that most politicians avoid discussing 
because the toolbox is counter to the interests of Wall Street and multinational corporations and hedge fund managers. For a reference point, you might remember the fits from financial and economic pundits to President Trump's 2017 and 2018 steel and aluminum tariffs. Economic security is determined by national economic policy. National security is also an outcome of national economic policy. Again, President Trump was also the first modern president to put the outlook to work when he said economic security is national security, and then began constructing a foreign policy agenda using the cornerstone of national economic policy. The result was quite remarkable and led to what eventually became the Trump Doctrine. It was inherently the U.S. national economic policy that underpinned President Trump challenging NATO to meet their financial obligations. It was national economic policy that drove trade policy and created the North American USMCA trade agreement. It was national economic policy that led to countervailing duties on Chinese and European imports, which had the remarkable effect of actually lowering prices inside the United States. We began importing deflation through lower price goods as the value of the dollar increased and China EU central banks devalued their currency to avoid the impact of tariffs. Asia and the EU also subsidized their export manufacturing with incentives in order to lower costs as an offset to the tariffs, while simultaneously Asian and European companies began investing in production facilities inside the U.S. as a long-term approach to retaining access to the U.S. market. To put it succinctly, this was magnomics at work. U.S. wages increased, U.S. job growth increased, U.S. energy prices dropped with increased energy development and a massive cut in regulations, and that in turn lowered the cost of domestic goods. Suddenly, we're importing goods at lower prices and generating goods internally at lower prices. More magnomic outcomes, which not coincidentally was the exact opposite of all Wall Street claims and predictions. MAGA was an outcome of national economic policy. At its core, MAGA is a national economic dynamic within a political movement that is represented by President Donald J. Trump. It's critical to understand the MAGA economic policy is essentially a national policy completely and uniquely under the control of the office of the president. The impact to the lives of Americans is a direct outcome from national economic policy. If a president wants to lead an independently wealthy country, he or she applies a very specific economic outlook to all other policy areas, including energy, regulation, and foreign policy. It's also true that opposition to President Donald Trump is uniquely connected to the America First economic agenda. Multi-million dollar lobbyist firms like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable, along with dozens of economically established support PACs funded by Wall Street and the multinational corporations, are vehemently opposed to the America First economic agenda. All of the national politicians and political candidates taking money from them necessarily bind themselves to a position that stands against the America First economic agenda. 
In essence, if you take money from the multinationals, you cannot deliver on MAGA economic outcomes for banking, trade, finance, etc. And that's exactly where we run into the problem, because MAGA national economic priorities conflict with the multinational corporations and the hedge funds and the Wall Street donor class, all of the politicians who accepted the influence checks from these self-interested groups cannot run on or deliver a MAGA national economic agenda. At a local, county, and state level, you have direct impact on the political policy agenda in your community. Who you elect to the city council, the school board, the state house and senate, as well as the governor's office, has an impact on those local and state priorities. However, national economic policy, national energy and trade policy, and national foreign policy are not under your control. As a result, the same skill set or policy outlook that makes a governor a successful state politician doesn't carry into a federal office. See the example of Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Yes, there are some executive and administration skills that carry over. However, on the bigger issue of steering the national policy agenda, Almost every candidate for office comes with the baggage of having accepted donor contributions from a class of people who are paying for economic policy influence. MAGA cannot be purchased. It is a political outlook that seeks only to enhance the best interests of the American people, regardless of consequence for the multinationals or foreign beneficiaries of globalist U.S. economic policy. Unfortunately, as a result, all of the beneficiaries are aligned to make sure the MAGA economic policy outlook is extinguished. There are literally trillions at stake. This really underpins the opposition to Donald Trump. When you understand why the national economic outlook of the president is so important, you can also understand why every political candidate is told not to discuss it by the handlers and campaign managers who are essentially selling their candidate to a millionaire and billionaire donor class who do not want an American-first economic policy agenda. There's no easy solution for this problem, and ironically, this core economic issue is where you find supporters of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in alignment. Maganomics is the core of the great MAGA Republican coalition, a working-class coalition that cuts through all other distinctions and divisions. It is not Republican because of political affiliation. It is MAGA Republican only because the Republican Party was the political vehicle selected by Donald Trump to install the policy. This reality creates a problem for the D.C. professional political class and the corporate media because MAGAnomics is the fundamentally binding principle there is no way to fracture the Trump supporter coalition. I'm a MAGA Republican by default of my wanting a national economic agenda that looks out for the economic interests of Americans first. Donald Trump is the irreplaceable great MAGA king because Donald Trump is the only one who holds that outlook. Unfortunately, the Republican corporation does not carry that priority. Thus, the big, ugly battle for control of the Republican Party. It's being previewed right now and will grow in scale and consequence very soon. Let me emphasize a key point. The Republican Party is not positioning to win the 2024 election. The goal of the Republican Party is to remove the threat represented by Donald Trump. When you start there, 
all of the RNC weaknesses or flaws look very different, very purposeful. Donald J. Trump isn't the cause of the Republican failure. He's the result of their failure. The people in control of Republican Club do not care who's in the White House. That's the secondary objective. What they care about right now is controlling the Republican Corporation and stopping the hostile takeover. Every single Republican presidential candidate for 2024 except Trump will be inserted into the race to help the Republican Corporation in this battle. When you see them enter, instead of asking how can they win, ask yourself, what is their mission on behalf of the club priority? Well, that carefully explains exactly how I feel. Thank you for listening to this No Restraint podcast. I'll be back with a new one before you get a chance to miss me. God bless you and God bless the USA. The Joyce Kaufman podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.